The reading this evening is taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. If you'd like to follow this in the Church Bibles, please turn to page 1061. Luke 24, 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognised him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us 
while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Um, Yes, I have remembered I'm speaking this evening, and it is genuinely a privilege to do so. And also, um, because Eddie gave me carte blanche of the whole Bible. Wow. A bit like a child in a sweet shop, you know, what shall I have? And I remember as a child being given 5p in old money and being allowed to choose sweets, and I tended to go for the ones that lasted the longest, um, they were my favorite, and they tended to be gobstoppers. So this is my gobstopper passage, and it lasts, and it has eternal, for me, eternal reference. It also happens to pick up the Easter story immediately after the resurrection, which is um, pretty much where we are this Sunday. But perhaps most of all, it speaks to the reality of life, um, Not surprisingly, it is, in my view, it's a pastoral passage. It's about nurturing faith. And it's about experiences familiar to many of us, I'm sure, when our expectations come to nothing. We're crushed by disappointment, and then suddenly hope rises. Phone call, an unexpected conversation, a little gift, and suddenly we're back on track, we're back on the road. Let me just pray. Father... Father, would you move among us by your Holy Spirit that we may have our eyes open to the hope that you have set before us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if any of you remember these words. People need to know that although hardship lies ahead, no one will be left without hope. Any guesses? Who said that? Spoken on national TV nearly three years ago, Rishi Sunak, then Chancellor of the Exchequer, spoke these words as he unveiled the government's plan for jobs. Hope. There's an oft-quoted saying that goes something like this. Man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. Now, we can argue about the numbers, um, but the principle is solid, isn't it? Without hope, without hope, something inside us dies. We've all been there, that feeling when the bottom falls out of your life. The desperation when Sunak spoke those words of thousands losing jobs, furloughs tipping into redundancy, whole industries collapsing under the weight of lockdown. I'd like to think he was doing his best. Could he deliver? Well, in many ways, it's not a fair question. Yes, he could. And yes, he did deliver a very temporary hope. But can anyone 
deliver lasting hope? That's the real question. And over the next 15 minutes or so, I'm going to take us through this seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And along the road, I trust that we'll find some pointers to a hope that delivers for the long haul. So walking and talking, you have these two guys and they're walking along the road about the unprecedented events of, of their day. And they're sharing their frustration and their anger and their shock. Jesus, their friend, the one they trusted, the one they pinned all their hopes on, had been hung on a cross, then buried. And now apparently he was missing from the grave. Their conversation is rapidly unraveling into despair. And then this kind of fellow walker, you know, kind of steps right into the confusion. He kind of steps right into the pain. He steps into the conversation. Now, that might seem odd in our kind of heads down, eyes averted, busy London hustle on the pavements. But even in rural areas today, it's not uncommon for to be walking along and somebody comes, oh, hi, you how's your day what's going on and then you walk on and they walk off it's 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 a fairly natural normal kind of thing to be doing Jesus steps into the confusion not with a great ceremony and blinding light but with a very gentle probing into their pain what are you guys talking about can can I join in They kind of look at him. Are you the only person coming out of Jerusalem who hasn't a clue what's been going on? The chief priests and our rulers handed Jesus to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Their disappointment is palpable. They're gutted. Their expectations have been crushed. They probably feel a bit silly, to be honest. We had hoped he was the Messiah sent from God to rescue us, and now he's dead. Oh, and then some of the women who, like us, were kind of following him, they went to the tomb this morning. Would you believe it? He wasn't there. Well, to be honest, we've had it. We're going home. Job done. Disappointed, let down. What does Jesus do? You see, I think this is so lovely. He doesn't try and persuade them. He doesn't cajole them. And although we read there, you foolish men, the foolish is not the foolish that we understand it. It's a foolish that says, but guys, you know this. You've read it. You know these scriptures. You know the story. And starting Right back in the Old Testament, he reminds them of all the prophecies, the promises that they as Jews had known since childhood, but perhaps not really understood. Here was a stranger coming alongside them, telling them their own history, and they were hearing it as if for the first time. And gradually, step by step, Hope stirs again. 
You've been there, I've been there. You can't see the wood for the trees, it's frankly gone belly up. And someone comes alongside and gives just a slightly different perspective. A perspective that brings life to a situation that had felt very, very dead. So, in some ways, it's about mismatched expectations. There they were, thinking to themselves, it makes no sense. Jesus, whom we loved and thought was the Messiah, why would he allow himself to be wrongly accused, sacrificed like a lamb to the slaughter? Perhaps, you know, some of us this evening are struggling to understand that very same question. Perhaps we are struggling to understand that it was Jesus' death that would bring us life. It was his death that would bring us life. It was his sacrifice that would bring us forgiveness. And that's what God had intended all along. So they're walking along and they come to their home. And as we heard from, from Mandy reading, thank you, Mandy, for that, um, they strongly urge him to come in. Now, actually, in, in, uh, in Greek, that's pretty much, they pretty much dragged him in. They just urged him to come in. This stranger, who'd suddenly been walking them, had brought them hope in their deepest despair. They wanted to talk some more. They, want, they wanted to hear more. And he's invited to come in. They set the table He breaks a loaf of bread and he blesses it. Their eyes are opened and suddenly they know, they see. Jesus is with them. It is true. He is risen. Why the breaking of bread should have been so relevant, to be honest, we don't know. It was a simple customary blessing of three travelers sharing a meal together. These two, and this is really interesting, these two guys were not part of the inner circle. They were not the important ones. They hadn't been at that Passover meal. They hadn't witnessed that. They were very much on the edges of the crowd of believers. And then Jesus just disappears, but only for a while. And so with hope comes energy. And with that energy, they just turned around and they hot-footed it all the way back to Jerusalem. They went to that room where the 11 disciples were and they said, it's true. And they were all saying the same thing. Now, The thing about hope, um, and the thing about hope in Jesus, is nobody can persuade you that Jesus is who he says he is. Nobody can do that. Only God can open our eyes to who Jesus is. And when we seek him, he will. The invitation is always there.
Jesus doesn't promise lives free from problems or danger or even misery. But freedom to live in the light of a hope that will not disappoint. In the light of a hope um, that can't be shaken. Oh my goodness, I wonder if some of you saw some weeks ago um, on the news, national news, carrying interviews and videos, footage of homes on the edge of the coastline in Mundersley in Norfolk. Does it, did anybody remember seeing that a few weeks ago? People being evacuated prior to the demolition of these houses to avoid the houses dropping off the edge of a crumbling cliff. Homeowners in complete despair their dreams of a day's res by the seaside literally crumbling before them. And an interview with the Coast Guard rather obviously stated, well, these houses were built on a cliff that's largely made of sand and is therefore fundamentally unstable. Well, okay, but small huddles of clifftop homeowners walking away from all they had pinned their hopes on. And actually, in the case of a B&B owner, their livelihood. And I actually found it quite heartbreaking to watch the dawning reality that they had built their hopes and dreams on very shaky ground. And that's literally what it was. It was, and it was hard to watch. Hard times come. The Bible tells us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As Christians, we're not immune to hard times, and goodness me, nor should we be. You know, Jesus isn't some magic wand that you wave across a problem and the problems go. In Jesus, however, I believe we have a hope that transcends those hard times. Some of you will have come across a book called The Case for Christ by an American political investigative journalist. Has anybody come across that book, Case for Christ? Guy's called Lee Strobel. So using his actually quite considerable skill, he goes full out to disprove the Easter account. And it was going to be his most celebrated kind of gotcha piece of investigative journalism. And you know what? He fails miserably. He ends up finding that the facts about the cross are irrefutable. Medical science, technology, archaeology, all pointed to the reality of the biblical account. But as Strobel himself acknowledged, the greatest barrier for him were not that the facts he sought to prove, to disprove rather, were true, but the simple reality, he didn't want to see the truth. He didn't want to see it. Why? Because the truth was too confronting. How could God love me so much that he would send his son to die on a cross and take the sin of the world upon himself? How could that be? How could that be? It is confronting. There's no other word for it. Uh, there's a guy called John Stott, very well-known uh, evangelical theologian, and he's reflected um, 
on the question of why people suffer when God is good. And he says the greatest single challenge to the Christian faith is that question. But in reaching his own conclusion, he says, I myself could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world, today's world, the world you and I live in, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? How could we do that? So I grew up with parents who were Christian, pretty standard, but wasn't actually a lot about Jesus. But it wasn't until my early 30s with a new baby that I began to really ask myself whether my own faith had any solid foundation. I mean, what kind of world were Louis and I bringing children into? That, that was a big question. Confronted as I was then, and I took time to look into it, I took time and confronted with the person of Jesus and the power of God's love through him, a love that didn't depend on my performance at work, even actually my performance as a parent, my abilities, my gifts, didn't depend on any of that. When I confront, was confronted with that person of Jesus and realized what he had done for me and how much God loved me, I began to understand the meaning of a kind of a grace-filled hope in my life. His unconditional love for me. And I chose to give my life to him in faith. So I just want to extrapolate a couple of two or three points out of this. One of my favorite verses is that verse 32 where it says, Were our hearts not burning within us when he talked with us on the road? Because as truth dawns, hope rises. Because of the resurrection... We live in a hope that will never let us down. Hope that can be brought to bear on disappointments. Hope that doesn't always change the circumstances, but radically changes how we deal with them. So what what perhaps can we learn from this passage? Um, I know what I take from it, and perhaps I could just share that with you. So, first of all, Jesus came alongside the ones who were on the edge of the circle. They weren't the big important people, were they? In fact, we only know the name of one of them. They don't appear again. When Jesus rose from the dead, he first appeared to some women who had stuck their neck out and supported him. And secondly, to two unknown disciples, those on the edges, and yet whose story is still recalled 
2,000 years later, we've got a lot to learn from that. There's something here about people and priorities. Now, over the years, I've had folks coming to me and saying, oh, Victoria, I know you're really busy, but could we have a chat about something? And my heart sinks. Why? I cannot bear the thought of being that person that is too busy to give somebody time. And I have really tried in my life not to be that person, but clearly at times I've failed. Um, Let me encourage us, let's not be that person that's too busy, and particularly for the ones on the edges. Let's not be that person. Jesus wasn't. I reckon he was a lot busier than we were. I mean, he was saving the whole world. So second thing, when when Jesus was talking with the disciples, do you know what he was doing? He was essentially telling his own story through the big narrative, the kind of rescue plan that God had laid out in the scriptures. And it captivated them. So again, let's not hold back from telling our story our own story of how God speaks to us, teaches us, encourages what we're learning. It has life for us. And then when we talk together, and this is one of the things I have to say, I'm going to miss so much about this church family, and I'm praying the Lord will give us some other people where I can just talk up God with some of my brothers and sisters, and our hearts burn within us because the Holy Spirit is at work and the Holy Spirit is revealing a new truth. That is what was going on with those two disciples. They were hearing stuff they'd heard however many times before, as if for the first time, because the Holy Spirit had come and revealed a new truth, and their hearts were burning within them. That is what I have loved about being part of this community. Ah, that's what I'm going to miss. I will not cry again, (laughs) but it could happen. (laughs) Third, when Jesus broke the bread and blessed it, he was simply doing something quite commonplace. But the eyes of the disciples were opened. And, you know, again, these are such simple, obvious things. God comes to us in the ordinary, in the everyday, in the just things that are trucking along in our lives. And he shows us how much he loves us. Um, I'm looking at the clock. I've got a couple more minutes. A quick example. So this Monday, um, where's Marie? There she is. Marie decided to come to Groombridge to see where we were. Um, I mean, she just said, actually, I'm leaving all the boys behind. Really, she was sussing out whether this is somewhere she could come and escape every now and again, and she decided it was. Um, so, (laughs) So we went for a walk. And we suddenly, as we were walking, thought, well, I go to the local pub. I mean, that's what you do when you're in the countryside. You go to your local pub, don't you? And so we went to a, we went to a pub and uh, we had, you know, we, we got a drink each. And 
these two people in sort of 40s were sitting and they said, oh, you can come and sit here, it's okay. So we were chatting, they were chatting and at some point the conversation melded. I really don't remember how. But what I want to say is that that conversation didn't just meld. Plopped into that conversation were connections of God, of life, of work, which were, I mean, honestly, just extraordinary. And we walked out of that pub and we thought God was right there in the midst of us. But do you know what that did for me? It gave me hope. It gave me hope. You know, God is in Groombridge. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's good news. Right. Um, final point. Mismatched expectations. That is what was also going on for those disciples. We've all been there. You thought your partner was picking up the kids and you suddenly find he's not. Hey, what's going on? And in my work, I have had so many encounters with people in their different companies. Ah, they just, they said they would do this and they're not doing it. And the question always has to be very gently, did they say that's exactly what they would deliver? Or did you just hope they would deliver that? And you've kind of based everything on that. Really an expectation of your own desires as opposed to what they said they would deliver. Now, it happens in families, it happens in workplaces. I mean, Louis and I had to certainly work out some mismatch expectations when we were first married. Occasionally comes up again now, but, you know, we've kind of learned how to sort it out. Um, <clears throat> and you know what? It's no different in a church. It is no different in a church. And dare I say, in a church like St. John's, with so many gifted people, competent, caring, who want to see the church grow, who want to see the needs of the local community met. And I think it's fair to say that over our years here, there have been mismatched expectations going on. But Mostly mismatched expectations are not about right or wrong. They are about personal preference. They're not about right and wrong. And, you know, as I've often said to people in, in, in my work and friends, any kind of leadership is tough. Leadership is tough. And if your leadership is not meeting your expectations, go back to basics. Did they say they were going to deliver those expectations or didn't they? Um, and of course, this is what was going on for these two, these two disciples. Um, <clears throat> they thought Jesus was going to come and get this huge army and overthrow the Roman Empire. And of course, that was, that was never going to happen. That was never going to happen. And Jesus just quietly comes alongside and he puts it right. Let me close. I think it would be, 
it would feel wrong uh, for me not to end by not just thanking you, but also really uh, quite publicly, and I did this earlier, uh, commending to you, Eddie and the staff team, the leadership of this church. Um, I've been part of that for some years, but what I really want to say to you is that in all the normal ups and downs of any church life, and I've also in my work had the privilege of uh, being involved in quite a lot of different church situations, let me tell you, St. John's is doing pretty well. But in all of those expectations we have, the one thing that we need to say is, is this leadership truly trying to follow Jesus? Is this leadership looking at God's word? And in all my years, I can honestly say that I have not seen otherwise. I have not seen otherwise. And, you know, when we first came to St. John's, I had, I had two rules of thumb, and we've had a number of vicars. Number one, always honor the call on the life of the vicar that is in your church. Honor the call on their life. They have been called. Honor that. Secondly, pray for them. And pray for them that the Holy Spirit will continue to reveal more of his truth to them so they can guide the church in the way that God would have it guided. And I would invite you, encourage you to always do that. Um, because it's tough at the top, whether it's a company, a church, uh, parents. It's tough when you're trying to lead anything. <clears throat> I'd like to end with a verse that is a great favorite of mine. Um, the Apostle Paul had been writing about suffering <clears throat> and the kind that builds character, resilience, and hope. And then he writes, hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The hope that Paul refers to is only found in Jesus. It's the lasting hope rather than the temporary hope, which is all good, I mean, Sunak did a great job, temporary stuff. That's security. You know, irrespective of our job prospects, our disappointments, our sadness, our losses, we can have confidence in the future because we have hope in Jesus, the Son of God, who promised eternal life when we turn to him as Lord and Saviour. Only God can deliver lasting hope hope that does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts. It is a great promise. Can I just pray? Father, thank you for what you have done for us. You've celebrated over Easter. We've remembered that Jesus had to die so that he could rise. Father, would you come among us by your spirit 
And would you rekindle hope if hope has been lost? Would you show us the hope of Jesus for the first time if need be? But would you come by your spirit and would you move among us and show us the love of God through Jesus? Amen.